suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, hello dear listener, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 331. If you're new to the podcast, this is a podcast where we talk about news and politics, sex and religion, and it's possible that this is live streaming onto the Hugh Harris Facebook page, so if you're a friend of Hugh's and this has come up and you're thinking, what the hell's going on and where's Hugh, the answer is that uh, in this special edition of the podcast, Hugh Harris is going to come on and we're going to talk about um, the Ukraine and the crisis over there and in particular a quote by Christopher Hitchens that... um, who put on his Facebook page, and he tagged me, obviously trying to dig me to get a response because he knew I'd probably object to parts of the quote, and sure enough, I did, and we agreed he should come on the podcast and we should talk about it. So so Hugh's coming on, and so with a bit of luck, this is streaming onto his Facebook page. And But Hugh um, has family commitments, a kid's soccer team and things like that, so he won't be joining us till about five past eight, ten past eight. So um, so hang on for Hugh. For Hugh. Once he's available, he'll come on and we'll, we'll start talking. So, um, so yeah, uh, we've got a chat, which you can see um, if you're on YouTube or on Facebook, and so you're welcome to make comments and they'll appear on the screen and I'll look... When it gets into the hurly-burly of a debate, it's really hard to keep track of the comments and to try and respond to them. When I'm busy thinking about things, it's hard to do it all. So so bear in mind that part of making the comment is just commenting to your other commenters and having it there in posterity, and I can't guarantee we actually get to it, although we try to. So, So anyway... If you feel inclined, say something in the chat room, whether you agree or disagree as we go along. And already there's a few people in there and there might be some new people who um, who join us as well. So so hello to Chris Turner, John Simmons, Tom the Warehouse Guy, Martin Featherstone, uh, the other um, people who are on there already, Aaron Claxton. So good on you. Um, make some comments. Now, here's the tricky part. We're going to be talking about Ukraine and a quote by Christopher Hitchens. And, but with Hugh not available till about five past, ten past eight, uh, I've got to fill in time and talk about other stuff. And I don't really want to enter into the Ukraine sort of stuff because, you know, Hugh's got to hear everything that's said and respond to it, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, we'll fill in time with some other stuff. So if you do have a comment to make, this is an ideal opportunity Um because I'm scratching around a little bit as I, as I fill in time. So, um, again, if you're new to the podcast, um, 
It's about uh, news and politics and sex and religion. Every second week we have a little panel with Shay and Joe where we discuss the news of the previous two weeks and every other week I try and come up with something a bit different which might be a book review or it might be um, some concept I'm thinking about or something like what's happening tonight. So uh, stick with us if you can, if you enjoy the show. And it's all on YouTube. It's all on the website, ironfistvelvetglove.com.au. And what else can I say as a bit of intro? So who am I? What's my relationship to Hugh? Who is who is Hugh? Like, at least I can say that. Um, so I was involved with the uh, secular party and was a candidate in the Senate and was um, – uh, in that process, became acquainted with the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools and met Hugh Harris, I think, through that and because he was part of the Rationalist. And Hugh came on for a few um, podcasts that we've done over the years. I mean, this podcast has been going nearly six years now, pretty much every week. So there's a lot of episodes and Hugh was on some of them. And, you know, what we found initially is we we agreed too much and he sort of thought, what's the point? Because we keep agreeing with things. but. As we've got older and grumpier, we disagree, but I shouldn't talk too much before um, he comes on. So um, who am I? So, yeah, running this podcast and I'm also the guy who's doing the um, the Supreme Court claim to teach satanic religious instruction in Queensland schools. So just a quick update on that. Um, for those of you who are unaware, uh, Section 76 of the Education Act Education General Provisions Act, has a section in there that allows ministers of religion uh, to enter into schools and to teach religion for an hour a week. Now, this is into our supposedly secular state schools. And uh, provided there's a kid of your denomination in the school who wants the lesson, then you can walk in and teach it for an hour a week and the principal can't stop you. So... Um, so anyway, I'm part of the Noosa Temple of Satan and we um, lodged the necessary paperwork with the department to say that we had children. We actually had uh, three families across four schools who changed their kids' enrolment in order to, uh, to say that they wanted religious instruction from us. Um, we wrote to the education department, filled in the forms and said, we want to start teaching. And they said, well, we're just going to say no to that. They gave a few fairly lame reasons we ended up in the Supreme Court, um, Bell versus the State of Queensland, and that was back on the 12th of August. And I met some patrons on the weekend at a function and they said, what's the latest with that, Trevor? And the latest is we're still waiting for an answer. So seven months later and the judge has still not given his response. So... Um, Spoke to a barrister friend of mine and he said that's not so unusual, so don't read a lot into it, which is a shame because I was starting to get excited thinking, gee, if it's taking seven months, then maybe I've got um, a good chance here. So, look, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. If, um, if we're successful, I'm sure the government will look at changing the law and um, so, yeah, that's some activism I've been doing and... I don't think Hugh is a fan of it. We'll talk to him about it. I think he thinks it's a bit of a crazy idea and a bit of a waste of time, but um, uh, we'll see what he's got to say. So um, let's see. Um, in the chat room, um, uh, 
questions were, did you end up looking at insiders with Stan Grant and um, lots of people on Twitter are angry with Stan Grant with his approach uh, on the ABC and uh, on a very, very rare occasion, Stan Grant can get something right, a bit like a stopped clock is correct twice a day and most of the time he's wrong on things. So I'm not surprised people get frustrated with uh, Stan Grant. Um, uh, Aaron says, give us a hot take about China. Um, hot take on China would be that obviously what's happening in the Ukraine is to China's advantage because with the rest of the world imposing, well, sanctions of some sort against, uh, Russia, against Russia, you know, China could easily slip in and, and supply some of that stuff at a premium price and... Um, it also, I think, gives China a bit of a blueprint on what could happen to it when the world turns against it seriously. So I understand that some of the Russian central bank assets have been frozen, where they've been held in sort of Western banks. And I'm sure China has looked at that and thought, okay, well, when things get, we need to make sure that doesn't happen to us. And, um, I've mentioned before that um, uh, things to do with the breakdown of the US dollar could flow from this as countries like Iran and Russia try to deal direct with China in their own currencies and some gold. So really from you know China's point of view, um, a positive step to sort of strengthen their position and um, – you know, and there's lessons to be learned here. Like we will be talking about the treatment of Russia by the West, by NATO, the the provocation, and Hugh is going to argue that it wasn't really provocation or he's going to question that. And it's all relevant when we're talking about China eventually. And if we can see that there were mistakes made with how the West dealt with Russia, then perhaps we can make sure we don't make the same mistakes when it comes to dealing with China. Maybe that's a positive to come out of this. So, um, all right, uh, what else we got here? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Now, one thing I could, which I have prepared and I will share with you is some really interesting stuff in relation to COVID and Hong Kong and New Zealand. So let's do that and fill in for a little bit of time while uh, waiting for Hugh. And I'm going to share on my screen. This is good for people in the – this is a good reason to watch the YouTube video of this rather than listening to the audio recording. I'll do my best to describe some of these graphs, but, um, but they're quite interesting. So I just saw this on Twitter, and this is from John Byrne Murdoch's Twitter um, account and I think he is a writer for the Financial Times. So this is also contained in an article for the Financial Times. And he says, I'm not sure people appreciate quite how bad the COVID situation is in Hong Kong, nor what might be around the corner. For an astonishing chart, after keeping COVID at bay for two years, Omicron has hit Hong Kong and New Zealand, but the outcomes could not be more different. So if you're in the chat room, you're able to look at the graph and you'll see that the blue um, part of the graph shows the daily cases per 100,000 on the left, Hong Kong, on the right, New Zealand. And essentially 
New Zealand's slightly higher than Hong Kong um, um, in terms of uh, daily cases per 100,000. But the, the red area underneath is the case fatality rate and um, all the, all the, um, the, the daily deaths per 2 million. And it's astonishing that New Zealand, hardly any deaths, um, but Hong Kong, an enormous number of deaths. You know, what's, what's going on? And just in terms of um, the fatality rate in Hong Kong, it's actually higher than it was in England in the winter of 2021. Uh, the blue line there is um, England and Hong Kong top right showing it's higher. Um, in recent days, Hong Kong has set a global record for the highest daily COVID um, uh, of the pandemic. So seven-day average of deaths per million. Hong Kong's got that unfortunate record, higher than Namibia, who had the previous record, and Portugal before that. And um, the cumulative confirmed COVID deaths per million, Hong Kong is now... Um, overtaking countries like Finland, Norway, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, where um, it was below those. So they kept, they'd kept the virus out of Hong Kong for a long time, just like New Zealand and to an extent Australia, but it's really um, um, spreading quickly. Now, um, if you're looking at, again, here's a graph showing on the blue is the cases. Um, Hong Kong, South Korea, Singapore, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and the red is Hong Kong. Again, the deaths are exceptional compared to the cases. What's going on? And the answer is in this graph here, which is vaccination status. So you can see there on the left is Hong Kong with lots of red bars, and essentially their elderly population has an extremely high proportion of unvaccinated people. And that's the key. Um, compared to, say, New Zealand or Singapore, who are in the, the other two graphs. So not only are they unvaccinated, um, but um, this other graph shows that um, you have to also account for the Chinese vaccine not being as effective as the other vaccines. And in fact, um, I don't know if you'll be able to see it on that screen, but in addition to the, to the hard red lines of the unvaccinated, a shaded areas um, showing that that gets accentuated because of the vaccine uh, that um, is released in Hong Kong um, is not as effective, the Chinese version. and. So, of course, it's the elderly who are not getting vaccinated and um, they're the ones who are vulnerable. And there's a chart here showing that they make up the lion's share of the mortality risk. So, um, so very interesting what's going to happen in or what is happening in Hong Kong. But more importantly, um, mainly in China, is now seeing its worst outbreak of the pandemic and, like Hong Kong, has large numbers of unvaccinated elderly people. 
So the, uh, the one on the left there is the Hong Kong level of unvaccinated people among the over 80s. And then there's China and compared to New Zealand and Singapore. New Zealand, Singapore, thin red lines, nearly everybody elderly vaccinated. Significant number of Chinese over 80 who are not vaccinated, about two-thirds of the Hong Kong problem. So Hong Kong's got a, a massive problem developing with mortality and it looks like China could be in for some dark days um, if the Hong Kong experience transfers across to China. It looks like it will based on vaccination rates of elderly people in China. So that was interesting. Saw that today. And um, so, you know, it just demonstrates for all those people who are arguing against lockdowns, quarantine, keeping a lid on the COVID pandemic while we got our act together in the world and developed vaccines, just the clearest argument possible that it was a great idea to lock down, batten down the hatches and prevent the spread as much as possible until we could hopefully get a vaccine, which we did. And it just goes to show um, um, how effective that was and what a difference it's made. And... um, and the arguments against the restrictions of personal freedom by libertarians who whinge and complain that the community wants to impose some conditions for the benefit of, benefit of the community, I mean, their arguments are just um, fall away, don't they? So um, uh, Tom the Warehouse guy says New Zealand has a better healthcare system overall. So, um, but... still don't see doctors over there because they can't afford it. Oh, that's here. That would be in China, I think. Um, Lots of Chinese medicine around too. Hmm. Yep, could well be the case. And all that's likely to transfer to mainland China as well, I think. Um, What else have we got here? Um, um, John Simmons. Too much wood medicine in China. Started by Mao when they had no uh, Wu medicine when they had no healthcare. You know that is a problem, isn't it? There would be people relying on traditional herbal remedies um, and thinking that'll be good enough for them. Like, uh, yep, could see that happening. So, speaking of China um, and local matters, um, just check out that picture. So, this is a picture of a mobile billboard in Canberra, of all places. Um, And it's got a picture of Xi Jinping um, having ticked Labor on a voting card and putting it into a voting box and with the words vote Labor on top of it. So essentially it's an advertisement saying if you vote for Labor, um, then Xi Jinping will be happy and he would be a Labor voter too. So... Incredible, <laughs> incredible that that this is going on. I mean, the McCarthyism of this anti-China uh, rhetoric is it's it's shameless. 
I was having a lunch today with one of the patrons, Paul, and if he's in the chat room, hello, Paul. Uh, we had a nice lengthy two-and-a-half-hour lunch, and Paul also donated some beer and also some crack and rum for you, Joe, so that was good. So we were uh, discussing all manner of things, and um, it's fun to meet up with the patrons or the listeners for the podcast because um, really we sit down, we just launch into topics without having to go through the preamble of, have you heard about this or are you aware of the background of this or whatever um, because clearly listeners to the podcast and I have the same information and um, it's good fun that we can just launch straight into conversations and get into the weeds on things. So um, in terms of uh, China, you know, I was discussing with Paul about how it was only four or five years ago that we struck, you know, a free trade agreement with them and that the, the Liberal Party was trying to, to have an extradition treaty with China. I mean, they can't go five minutes without talking about human rights abuses in China now, yet it was only four or five years ago that they were wanting an extradition treaty where people would be sent back there. You don't do that with regimes that you think are dodgy. Um, the UK on occasion has refused to send people back to the United States because of fear of the treatment they would get in the US prison system. So, um, but, you know, it's just like Orwell's 1984. If you, if you read the papers today, we've always been at war with East Asia. That's where we're at. You just, you just have to be flabbergasted at the shameless ignorance or the just the the, the failure to recognise where we were just such such a short time ago. And it was it was the Liberal Party who were banging on about how Labor was ruining our relationship with China because they questioned things like the extradition treaty because they question things like the free trade agreement where, um, where we'd said, hang on, hang on a minute, this might mean that we have a lot of cheap Chinese workers coming into the country. I mean, um, commentators and parliamentarians on the Liberal side um, were just going hammer and tongs at Labor for the possibility that they were going to cruel our relationship with China. And just a short time later, here we are. So... Um, John Simmons says, please don't call it a free trade agreement. There's no such thing. That's a good point, John. Hang on a second. I'll just put this air conditioning on. You're right. There's no such thing as a free trade agreement. Um, uh, they just reduce some tariffs on some things. Like even when we struck a free trade agreement with the USA shortly after we went joined them and going to war on Iraq, I think it was, a bit of a reward. A um, bunch of different things, particularly agricultural products, where we still weren't allowed to um, compete on an equal footing with the USA. But the worst thing about free trade agreements, of course, and this is going to really come to roost in the coming years, is they have these investor dispute um, uh, clauses. So basically multinational companies can take sovereign governments to a dodgy tribunal and say, oh, 
sovereign government has changed its laws and as a result my ability to freely trade in a, in that country has diminished and that's not allowed under the free trade agreement and that's the sort of thing that was used by Philip Morris to complain when Australia um, changed the packaging on cigarettes and they were claiming under uh, uh, these sort of dispute resolution clauses. And the problem with that stuff is it ends up going to a tribunal, which is the dodgiest tribunal on the planet. They're just, they're just made up of people who are lawyers in this in this sphere, some of them acting as advocates uh, on other cases and sometimes acting as adjudicators. Um, and they're, they're not senior lawyers by any stretch. And the laws that the likes of Philip Morris are, are relying on are, uh, you know, quite strong in the favour of the multinationals. Similar things have happened with fracking. So a country might... This, you know, make it illegal to do fracking because they want to protect the environment and um, oil companies will take them to these dodgy tribunals and um, claim it's a breach of the free trade agreement and claim all sorts of compensation and they've had victories for that. So the other really incredible thing about this is we don't get to see these agreements in their – they're kept secret and uh, – it's not until these things are a done deal because of sort of commercial inconfidence arrangements and then they're foisted on us at the very end. Um, you know, the, the sort of these sorts of agreements, I can remember we talked about way back in the early episodes, number 20, 30, somewhere around there we were bemoaning them and, um, and they're still around and they're dangerous and um, we'll see what happens with those. So. Um, so I'm um, just looking at the comments. Um, Martin Featherstone, the irony, China loves the Libs party privatisation of flogging ports and allowing foreign tax-free investment in our bloody water. Yeah. So that's, um, so that's a short riff on where we are with China and we are living in the days of just a McCarthyist-type experience and Orwell would be proud of, of how we've turned um, that we're now at war with East Asia. Also, he'd be mm, concerned. I don't think I'll talk with Hugh about this, but some of the censorship that's coming now with um, uh, Facebook and YouTube are... Uh, shutting down contrary voices and, you know, arguably the sorts of discussions they're shutting down in relation to Ukraine are, are valid commentary and um, they've shut down the whole of Russia today. Is it Russia Today, I think it's called? Um, shut down the whole of that, which probably includes my interview where I was interviewed as a, uh, as a Satanist and... Some guy from Russia Today had heard about it and I was on there, so that's disappeared, no doubt. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a censorship going on there where um, people who are putting a contrary view to the mainstream view of the Ukrainian war are being censored 
and uh, Orwell would note. Also, you know, there's also discussions. You see things where they're talking about the possibility of um, chemical weapons and Western media will report that there are concerns by the West that Russia is considering that maybe it might think about planning to, at some stage in the future, possibly using chemical weapons. And this comes from an unnamed source in the government and and that gets printed as news. Um, and people complain about uh, Russian propaganda. What's, what's worse, where you uncritically... Um, repeat what the government forces you to print or where you uncritically repeat uh, the scoop that the government has fed you. So um, so as you're looking at all this stuff, dear listener, um, oh, actually, I can mention this. Um, we'll mention some videos that I watched and I highly recommend these to you and Joe might put up the links in the chat room for you. So uh, if you're wanting to sort of understand the Maidan um, rebellion um, revolution in the Ukraine, there's a really interesting Netflix documentary called Winter on Fire. And it um, it gives the... Gives a positive view from the point of view of the protesters, if you like, and it's quite shocking the level of um, get rid of this. We don't need that anymore. It's it's quite shocking the level of violence. Like it's amazing what was going on in those squares and the confrontation with police. Uh, so you know, in these days of everyone's got a phone and video camera, and you know, it, the scenes are amazing, and it's it's very interesting. So. If you are at all interested in this topic of Ukraine, then um, watch Winter on Fire on Netflix and then, and do it in this order. Do, re, watch that one first. And then, um, then watch Ukraine on Fire, which, um, oh, what's the name of the director? Um, help me out here, Joe. Ukraine on Fire. Um, He's a famous director and he's um, – I'm sure it'll come up in the chat room soon. So that paints a different picture where it questions um, some of the – whether there were sort of some Nazi elements in the protesters who um, who sort of massaged some of the events and and really puts a different spin on what happened. And it's – if you can do it in the one session, if you can find three hours one evening or something where you watch that first video and and you go, oh, wow, look, that's terrible. It's, it, it remains terrible even after watching the second one. But after watching Ukraine on Fire, you do then think back on what you had just watched on Winter on Fire with just a different feeling and perspective. And it's amazing how you're – your sense of justice, your feelings about the whole matter can be manipulated by 
a well-constructed documentary, um, let's face it, and you're sort of thinking, who's, who's right here? Where's the truth? Is it, is it at one end or the other? Is it in the middle? Um, what can I believe from these different things? Um, it's an interesting exercise in the power of propaganda and so highly recommend it. Um, Ukraine on Fire was actually supposed to have been um, banned as part of this sort of crackdown, but I was able to find it fairly easily just by Googling and so hopefully you're still able to see it. So has anyone in the chat room seen either of those videos? I'd be keen to know. And um, what I'm also keen to know, um, dear listener, is um, um, you might remember last week, I think it was, I was talking about the Reuters were reporting that they had um, heard direct from the Russian government about what they wanted in terms of a peace deal. And essentially it was the Russians wanted the Ukraine to, number one, change its constitution so it would never um, sign up to NATO. Number two, give up the Donbass region. Number, number three, agree that Crimea is a done deal and, and um, give up all claims to the Crimea. Now, I, as you know, am reading widely everything I can on these things relentlessly, more than any normal person could possibly. Um, it's, you know, my curse that I get, you know, fanatical about these things and I've got a podcast to do. I haven't seen anything reported by anybody about that proposed deal and a discussion on whether the Ukraine should take it. All I've seen is that different teams of negotiators are meeting at different times, sometimes with the assistance of the Italians or the French or, or the whatever. But tell me in the chat room, has anybody ever seen any other media other than this humble podcast refer to that, um, to that offer by Russians? I haven't seen it. Okay, in the chat room, and this must be, um, in March 2022, it was reported that the documentary had been removed from YouTube, with the company explaining that they removed this video for violating our violent or graphic content policy, which prohibits content containing footage of corpses. Ah. Um, uh, okay with massive injuries such as severed limbs. The film was then uploaded to Rumble for free. Uh, however, as of 12th of March 2022, the documentary is still available on YouTube with a warning placed on the video. Yep. So there's some graphic scenes in both of those um, documentaries. And, you know, one of the things that comes across was... Um, the practice that the Ukrainians had for building barricades and shooting at people and defending themselves and um, and sort of getting used to a bit of a wartime situation. So it's not surprising that they've put up some half-decent resistance 
in this initial part of the war with Russia, based on the the practice they were getting as a community um, uh, in that uh, what you see in that um, documentary. So John Simmons says he's uh, it's still on YouTube. YouTube, he just found it. So apologies, I'm still filling in time. It's eight minutes past eight, and with a bit of luck, Hugh Harris will um, have a microphone in front of him and some head. And we'll get going on the Ukraine. Um, I've sort of just covered some things that I don't think we would have covered. And um, the chat room, what do you want? Anything at all that you want discussed? Um, um, no. I mean, we've been banging on about Ukraine for a number of weeks now, but it is important. Like, we could have a nuclear war. We could have a third world war come out from this. So, you know, it is worth repeating Ukraine ideas and discussing them. And um, so, you know, we some of the other topics that have been going on, um, you know, this all-white jury in the Northern Territory um, um, coming down with a, an innocent or not guilty finding, um, Gray's tone, anything Scott Morrison does, um, these issues just at the moment seem a little lightweight compared to the major things that are going on. Um, Eric says, any update on the Temple of Satan court matter? Eric, you've tuned in a little bit late. I gave it in the initial part. <laughs> Short answer is seven months still waiting, fingers crossed. So, um, um, yeah, MH17 is that aircraft that was shot down over what is that sort of Donbass region and it seems like there is court action now or some legal claims being made against the Russians, I think it is, and why now? Uh, the Dutch have been arguing for action for years, uh, says Tom the Warehouse Guy. And probably the Dutch feel safe in taking the Russians on at this stage. And I feel they might get some help from the system, perhaps. So, um, yeah, I saw something and I don't know where it was, but it's tricky to know where the, um, well, what was it suggesting? Okay, clearly it was shot down. It was from a missile that, rather than striking the aircraft, exploded just outside the aircraft. And one group is saying that the nature of the explosion, actually, I think, I think this might have been in that Ukraine on Fire documentary. I think that's where I saw it. Um, so they were giving one argument that the missile and the nature of it meant that, yes, it was a Russian missile or Russian-made missile, but it was an older version and they could tell by the fragments that it was the case and the Ukrainians own old versions like that. Um, so it's tricky, isn't it, when you've got the Ukrainians owning Russian missiles of the type that were used and... You've got it where it could have been um, brought about from either side of the Donbass region. And Hugh Harris, I can see him in the green room, is 
Uh, I'll let him in now and hopefully, Hugh Harris, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Excellent, Hugh. We're live. We're even live on your Facebook page, I believe. So Yes, I've, I've tried that. So right. let's see what, uh, what sort of comes back from that. Yeah. Anybody in the chat room who's here because of the... Uh, of the feed through Hugh's um, Facebook page. Could you say hello, please? So, um, and it looks like we might have a troll there, Joe. It's probably, <laughs> Joe, probably. Yeah. For those of you in who are new to this podcast, um, when we, uh, Joe the tech guy helps out in the background, bouncing out trolls and chipping in with assistance where necessary. So, so it's good to have Joe and he will, he will do that. Um, Oh, the host says um, there's three people watching on Hugh's feed, but they can't comment and vice versa. Oh, that's a shame. Well, you could leave. If you want to comment, go on to the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Facebook page and you'll be able to comment there or go onto YouTube and find us and you'll be able to comment there if you would like to comment. So um, if you want to support Hugh as he battles away <laughs> with, with his lame arguments, you want to give him a bit oh, of support. here we go. <laughs> So, Hugh, you've um, safely negotiated the Rochdale Soccer Club and you've made your way back. <laughs> yes. Good made on you. Way back. Thank longest you for that. Training, longest training of all time. So I thought I'd be home with half an hour to spare, but no. <laughs> right. I've been babbling on about a bunch of different topics. Um, I have been listening. I oh, have you? Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, there we go. All yeah. right. So you're up to speed yeah, on that. Did I say anything? <laughs> did I say anything that you want to contradict at this point or not we're okay not with everything really. i've said no, look okay. I, no i just i i saw a little bit of irony in you talking about censorship in australia and right. how outraged you are by the censorship we have here um but um yeah okay. let's let, let's uh leave that one go forth. okay yeah. so um so um you, I mentioned that when we first met and we had some dealings um, and you came on a few times, but we kind of stalled a little bit with you because you said, look, Trevor, I, I agree with you too much. It's not, an, it's not really <laughs> not worth when we have, coming on. When we on disagree, though, that when we often. disagree, we can, have a, we can have a pretty good argument. <laughs> That's though. right. We and had a pretty good argument about Venezuela, which was evidently <laughs> it was probably a little probably bit too, too much. dry to publish. Hopefully yeah. we won't descend into the Venezuela fiasco and we'll keep it above that but okay so uh you're very naughty here because um you you tempted me and you put up a um a quote on your facebook page and not only did you put up the quote from christopher hitchens but then you you know you put my name in there more or less teasing me because <laughs> you thought i would disagree is that right why, why did you yeah. put my name there Oh, well, I did. I watched, I, I, I sort of watched, um, I listened and uh, watched the one that you did. Oh, the couple of the, you did two about Ukraine, didn't you? Yeah. Um, maybe three. I think it was Chris Chris Hedges that you quoted at length. Right. Yeah. Uh, and also um, Cameron, his last name escapes me. Um, uh, Cameron, Cameron Riley. Yeah, right. chimes in. Okay. Um, fairly regularly on Facebook on the same topic. And so, yep. yeah, I'm just uh, – and, uh, I, look, I just thought it was a very prescient to to read that statement, which was made in 2008, mm. based on where we are in 2022. 
um, doesn't mean that I absolutely agree with everything Christopher Hitchens ever said mm. um, or his views on on other conflicts, but I think he had a pretty good a pretty good understanding of um, of politics, um, having been to most of these war zones, reported on them, written at length about them, and spoken to people in depth. And um, he hated uh, totalitarianism, absolutely detested it. And uh, I think that's reflected. The other thing about this statement is that, uh, as you know, part of an interview that he did, and um, one of the most beautiful things about him is the way he can talk better than what most of us can write mm. uh, in in just the way the words come out of his mouth. So, um, mm. and I think he's I think he's described the situation probably fairly extravagantly, but um, essentially in a true way. Yes, which I thought you would disagree with. Yes, so you're right there. You know me too well. So, <laughs> um, so I'll read out um, the quote, and um, and then we'll sort of work our way through the issues, see where we end up. So, sure. so the quote is: "The Russians are going to be expansionist." Whether actually, what I might do, Hugh, is I might read the lead-up question to it, so it's in its full context. Is that? Is yeah, that, I, I quoted that too. Yeah. So, so yeah. let me. Um, uh, let me see. Um, uh, let me see. So he's on a program NPR in um, National Public Radio in America, I think it was, and mm. they had a um, sort of a call-in talkback type thing. So this guy Matthew calls in and says, "Hi, I'm Matthew from Atlanta." Now this is actually, and we've got to get the date right too. This is two thousand and eight. August 2008, and in context, that is just after um, Russia uh, was involved in Georgia, I believe. So, okay. So the uh, the sky rings up and says, "Hi, I'm Matthew from Atlanta. It seems that with so many issues causing concern for American voters this year, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint a single defining point. But for me, it seems that as Russia has just openly stated." that it has no fear of another Cold War, we have a choice ahead of us, especially among conservatives, and you had encouraged conservative voters to comment. And the question, it seems to me, is, do we bargain with Russia? Do we play ball with Russia in order to obtain their cooperation with the Iranian problem and the North Korean problem? Or, on the other hand, do we draw a, you know, a thick red line around the Eastern Bloc, ex-Soviet states, that we've, you know, sort of pledged our support and our protection of. So the question was, do we play ball with Russia to get concessions on other issues or do we draw a thick red line around the Eastern Bloc? And his response was, yes, well, there was a big argument about this about a decade ago under the Clinton administration about NATO expansion and the underlying principle difference was this. Some said, if you expand NATO, you will provoke the Russians. They'll think they're being encircled. And the other opposite case was they're going to try and regain their temporarily lost influence in Eastern and Balkan Europe in any case. So the quicker we can get as many members as we can under the protective umbrella in this period of Russian, what should we call it, eclipse, the better. Now that's all the lead up to the quote that you then put up, which was, uh, here's the quote, I think the second view was the more intelligent one. The Russians are going to be expansionist whether we provoke them to it or not. 
For example, the Russians keep saying that we're trying to encircle them. In what sense does the independence of Kosovo, a landlocked province, former Yugoslavia, with no common border with Russia, threaten Russia with encirclement? In what sense does the independence of the Baltic states, which the Soviets gained as territory in a deal with Hitler, a direct bargain between Stalin and Hitler, would it constitute an encirclement? This is insulting. In what sense does the independence of Georgia constitute an encirclement? What we are facing, and we may as well give it its right name, is what I called earlier chauvinistic, theocratic, in part xenophobic Russian imperialism. So if I can summarise, he's saying that this talk of encirclement is nonsense and what we're really looking at is um, chauvinistic, theocratic, xenophobic Russian imperialism. So... Um. Oh, any comment yes. at this point, Hugh? <laughs> He's probably described it in a colourful way, mm. but um, yeah, I think he's he said in comparing the two views, the second view was the more intelligent that the Russians are going to be expansionist, whether we provoke them to it or not. Mm. Um, and so then. I guess you might you might want to outline where your disagreement with it is mm. because on my Facebook page I think I know why it is but I mm. maybe you, you should outline that first. So I would say that there's been any number of well-credentialed experts who of the highest credentials who have warned that expanding NATO would uh, that Russia would feel threatened by that, and it, in fact, was some, not only would they feel threatened, but it was something that that NATO shouldn't do. So, so they said it wasn't a nonsense to think that Russia would feel threatened by expanding NATO, and in fact, it shouldn't. And there's a lot of well-credentialed experts. You know, these aren't lazy left wingers. Do you mean like, uh, is it Chris, Chris Hedges? Uh, is that his name? So, well, John Mearsheimer, Stephen Cohen, John Mearsheimer, Stephen yeah. Walt, George Kennan. Stephen, Co Stephen Cohen is mm. quite an extremist. Okay. George Kennan. George Cannon said something to the effect at the time. That's what I, what I understand. Yeah, so, so. He warned Clinton about saying that. Yeah, and, and so yeah. George Kennan was like the architect of of the Marshall Plan. Yeah. Like he's so, in the thick of it from from that time, from the earliest of times. So he's yeah. he's as well-credentialed as you could get, I would have thought. Okay. He, no? I don't, I don't mm. know a lot about him. I understand he's well-credentialed. I, yeah. I understand yep. there's people that are well-credentialed who hold the same view that you do. Okay. I'll, I'll, perhaps I'll, I, give, I'll give one more. My key one would be the diplomatic cable from the U.S. Embassy. So I've talked about the this previously. U.S. Previous. Embassy in, in Russia. Yes. Are you aware of that cable at all? I have read it, yep. yep. It says something to the effect of that Bill Clinton's remarks will inflame the Russians. No, this is... Um, this, this was is... when they were doing the, the peace, P4P uh, P agreement, and then Clinton went on to say that we should have some more countries that join NATO. 
Clinton isn't mentioned in this. Um, So this is a classified diplomatic cable obtained and released by WikiLeaks from 2008. It's written by Uh, the US Embassy in Moscow. And it's addressed to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the NATO European Union Cooperative, the National Security Council, um, the Secretary of Defence and the Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. And I'll quote from it. Not only does Russia... So this is the American embassy. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement by NATO and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. Dmitry Trenin, deputy director of the Carnegie Moscow Centre, expressed concern that Ukraine was, in the long term, the most potentially destabilising factor in the US-Russian relations, given the level of emotion and neuralgia triggered by its quest for NATO membership. Because okay. Just one final bit, which is really important. Because membership remains divisive in Ukrainian domestic politics, it created an opening for Russian intervention. Trenin expressed concern that elements within the Russian establishment would be encouraged to meddle, stimulating US overt encouragement of opposing political forces and leaving the US and Russia in a classic confrontational posture. It's pretty compelling that it's not fanciful to think that Russia was threatened by NATO expansion. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I disagree with that. That Russia is threatened by NATO expansion. But hang on, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. Okay, but- and neither neither is Christopher Hitchens. I think the fact is Russia is threatened by it, but for illegitimate reasons. But, but, and, but hang on. So the bits where, where Hitchens says, um, in what sense does the, do these things threaten Russia and saying it's insulting, is, is he wrong in, in, in that? He, I, I think when you say threaten Russia, it's not, I don't think anyone seriously thinks that NATO is going to launch bombs onto Moscow. NATO is not going to invade Russia. Everyone knows that. We know that. So it's ridiculous to think that um, Putin is um, hunkering down in his bunker in fear of NATO invading him. It's not, it's not NATO invading Russia. It's Russia invading its smaller ex um, parts of the Union. It's, uh, Russia has invaded. Uh, Russia's been at war with uh, Chechnya, Georgia. It's marched troops to the um, border of Belarus. It's uh, annexed Crimea, and now it's fully invaded Ukraine. Russia is not the one worried about NATO bombing but, but, but Russia. Just... Russia. Russia is um, by... Um, but, but we've the, got the, where, we, the US just admit, with... we've just got the US embassy in Russia saying Russia I is agree. worried. Yeah, Russia is, Russia is threatened yes. by ex-Soviet Union countries joining NATO. Because um, 
of Putin's stated ambitions for Russia and because um, he he wants to be um, it's it's to do with the nationalism in Russia mm. that's um, his initial popularity um, he was a hero to Russians for his um, the war in Chechnya when Yeltsin was getting pummeled um, they lost the first war and then won the second war um, when he was prime minister then um, so his popularity was um, sky high with that um, there is a strong uh, sentimentality amongst Russians. I, re- I think there'd be a, a considerable amount of the population which would support uh, Russian action to recover the empire. Mm-hmm. And um, Putin's statements uh, indicate that he is a man who wants to who wants to recover the empire. He's he said, let, let's just have a look at this, some of the statements he's made in two thousand and four. It is my deep conviction that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was a national tragedy on a massive scale. Mm. In 2005, I've just got three, so I won't go on forever. Mm. In 2005, above all, we should acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century. As for the Russian nation, it became a genuine drama and so on. He also said in 2007... Russia is an an ancient country with a historical profound traditions and very powerful moral foundation. And this foundation is a love for the motherland and patriotism, patriotism in the best sense of the word. Um, He has, uh, it's said that he models himself on Tsar Peter the Great. He has um, busts of Catherine the Great and all the great, um, the great Tsars, the conquering Tsars of, uh, Russian history, his he wants to recover the parts of the Soviet Union as far as he can, and he wants to be a great man in history. That's what he said. Um, Absolutely agree with you 100% that he's a nationalist and he has a sense of history, and if he goes down in history as having recovered uh, territory for the motherland, um, that's absolutely uh, part of his DNA and his thinking. Don't disagree with you at all. But mm. people can hold more than one reason in their head and have uh, and have that desire for, you know, that nationalistic desire, but at, at the same time hold a, a concern about a threat from a build-up of NATO-allied countries on their border. You, yeah, could, you, could, accept, you could do both, I, couldn't you? I accept what you're saying, but what no one has a right to have a zone of neutrality around their own country, no matter what sort of great power they are. There, there isn't a right to have that, and that's what Putin is suggesting. Putin, what he's doing when he's suggesting that is he's denying the sovereignty of countries like um, Ukraine and Georgia. Those countries can cannot move. They can't go into NATO. They can't join the EU, according to him. They, mm. And they have to maintain puppet regimes that are loyal to the Russian Federation. And so JFK That's what was he's saying, and we have to mm. appease that. And when when you're going to go into what if what aboutism in terms of Cuba? Mm. Yeah, I think the, the American invasion of Cuba was a monumental blunder. Okay, so that's good. So for consistency, then where you said that no country has the right to 
um, demand and neutral territory around it. And therefore, are you saying that Kennedy was wrong for insisting that Cuba not have missiles because that's kind of the same thing? Is that is that for consistency? It's not really the, it's not really the same thing. U- Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal to Russia. They do not have uh, nuclear weapons pointed at Russia. R- okay, but surely Russia's entitled to say, we're worried about NATO missiles being pointed at us, and as NATO moves closer to us, there's less distance for missiles to travel. They're entitled and, and, to say that. And, yeah, and, and, that wouldn't, and that wouldn't strike me as, as an absurd uh, fear on Russia's part. I think, um, yeah, well, I think part of it, I was listening to a podcast with Fiona mm. Hill, who was an ex-advisor mm. to um, US presidents, mm. and she was saying that he has these um, busts of all the famous leaders of Russia, you know, mostly totalitarian uh, leaders. Mm. He was obsessed with the video of Gaddafi. He was mm. obsessed with the video of um, Saddam Hussein getting killed. Right. This is what he fears. So and, I, I don't disagree with you that the expansion of NATO is going to be a hell of a worry to him and that perhaps he he might have an irrational fear that, you know, someone's going to sh- start shooting missiles at Russia. But on the other hand, he holds a significant ambition to um, improve the stocks and recover what the what was the national tragedy of the loss of the Soviet Union. So much so mm. that when you look at his behaviour, Trevor, it's not others that are, are going to in, invade Russia. It's Russia that is bullying its neighbours. Mm. Russia invaded Chechnya. Two wars of in, in Chechnya. It it couldn't stand for any independence from its. Um, states it invaded Georgia it in, and and now it's a, it's annexed Crimea um, and what it's done when it's it, it's um, backed separatists in in these um, former Soviet Union countries mm-hmm. it's given them weapons and then when uh, surprise surprise that conflict has got out of hand it sent in the um, peacekeeping force mm-hmm. which went in and brutally crushed rebellions, tortured um, uh, people. There's plenty of stories of men getting taken from their homes and then getting wrapped in carpet and dropped into mm. a mass grave later. Mm. Can, before we explore general issues, can I just try and get this Kitchens quote done and dusted? And the parts, because a lot of what you've said goes beyond sort of the Hitchens quote. I mean... Yeah, but re- I think re- the, really, the, 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 bulk... the main truth of it, though, is what that's what I'm talking about. Well, I, I, okay, so um, let me just see here. Um, uh, so let's just deal with the parts of the of of the Hitchens quote where he's poo-pooing the idea that Russia could feel threatened by you, a build-up of NATO. Could you put it up on the up on the screen, or is it on the side? Uh, yeah, I could put it up. So he's he's poo-pooing the idea that. Russia could be threatened because he's saying these countries he's saying these countries are landlocked and how could they possibly encircle Russia it's 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 insulting but that's the nature of of what he's the middle part of his paragraph there 
and and that that is just wrong to say that Russia that wrong Kosovo is not going to be launching missiles no, at Russia. It's, it's it's wrong to say that the build up of NATO forces cannot be taken as a threat by Russia. I mean it's wrong it's wrong I think Hitchens is correct to to say that it is not a realistic threat of military action against Russia. If you are an irrational um, megalomaniac, kleptocrat, dictator, tyrant like Putin, um, perhaps you can take it as a threat. What I mean when I agree that it's a threat, it's a threat to the, um, to, it's an insult to the great, um, what's what's the words for it, uh, for the Russian Empire, for what Putin sees as the greatest empire on earth. It's an insult to that. What's the purpose but, of yeah. NATO? It's defence. Against? Well, did you listen to the the warfare podcast? I yes. So, I what was the purpose? You? Yes. What was the purpose of NATO? The what? purpose of NATO is to collaborate to um, maintain the peace in Europe. I, I, um, uh, can I zoom in on the quote? Um, <laughs> no, I, but but against who? Like NATO, according to the podcast that you sent me, was to keep. The Germans down and the Russians out. Yeah, that was I mean, the quote from the first um, from the first head head of NATO. Yes, and it's to to keep well. It was it, more than that. It's to keep the America in. It, it, yes, and Germany keep down Russia out and keep Germany down. Yes, but this is in nineteen. This is nineteen forty eight. Yeah, but realistically, that. what has been the purpose of NATO is been to to protect countries against a possible Russian attack. I mean, that's the purpose of it, isn't it? Isn't and, that? Well, it was initially also Germany because yeah. France yeah. particularly feared a German, uh, yeah. you know, a, a German fight back because France had defeated them in two wars. Yeah. But, but everyone knows it's about taking on Russia collectively if necessary. It's a, well, it's about stopping countries from being invaded and, and the most likely it's, invader and, 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 everyone was thinking of was Russia. Well, yes. Yeah. Why do you think that is, yeah. Trevor? Well, well, what the point is... Who has, who has carried so, out so the is, most invasions so is that country, in the last 20 years? Yeah, well, let's... I oh, don't... I'll, hang on. If we're going to start adding up invasions, you're on shaky ground there, Hugh. But, yeah, but in, in Europe, <laughs> who... I mean, it doesn't matter who they're who they're worried about. Mm. It was it was Germany. It was more Germany than Russia at the mm. start. But Russia also, after the Second World War, grabbed some um, significant amount of territories for themselves. Okay, I'm and gonna... they expanded. They went to expand the um, the communist empire as far as they could. Okay, I'm not going to get anywhere with you on that one. But I'll leave it up to the dear <laughs> listeners to. Well, you, they've, they've you heard... are also you are also entitled to change and modify mm. your own opinion. Uh, yeah. So we're um, both entitled to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I've sort of explained why I think um, the Russians had a legitimate reason to feel threatened, and you've given your answers. And so we, rather than going on and on and on on that topic, the other part yeah. about um, in the quote, he begins with um, the rush. The Russians are going to be expansionist, whether we provoke them to it or not. So this was said in 2008 and yes. um, Gorbachev came to power in 1985 
and uh, I think it was Posner, who you don't like, who's the Russian propagandist, who I yes. acknowledged was a propagandist, but he made a point yes. which was after Gorbachev from 1985 to 2007, what did Russia do that was expansionist that the US or any other country could complain about? And he said, you won't find anything. Now, well, not Chechnya. So, what what did they do, brutal, and when was that? Brutal, brutal crackdown uh, was around nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and two, I think, something like that. Was that um, was that within its own borders, or was that? External? It was um, Chech. It was two wars. It was Chechen separatists. Uh, it was the Tatars and the the Muslims. You, mm. you you might recall there were supposed terrorist attacks by the Chechens in, I think it was Moscow, with buildings being um, mis- missiled and things like that, <laughs> which were also suspected of being false flag attacks. So, so was this within the borders of Russia? Well, uh, Chechnya, um, Chechnya uh, sought independence. Right. They declared independence. They had an election and they uh, elected their own uh, leader, then they were defeated in war. Mm. They, they, the elections were um, regarded, declared illegal mm. by Russia, and the Chechen candidate won with ninety percent of the vote. I, I don't. I have to confess. And then they, I, were, then they were crushed militarily by Russia, and. You know, I, I'm I, not a history expert or, mm. at all, but that's that's what I was reading about. But I think Russia's shown enough of, oh. and Putin's made the statements. He's but, um, he's been involved with several several other countries. He was involved in Syria to add to that. Um, so there's you know there's plenty of, um, and it's not it's not the same as sending in a genuine peacekeeping force mm. when you go in there and keep the territory or install a puppet regime to suit your own. Um, to suit your own government, and I think I think the actual the the thing that I would like people to consider in the chat is that when you're considering what Russia does, we need to just consider what Russia does. This it's we're not in the Cold War anymore. It's not a comparison between who is better, the US or the Russians, and it's not a comparison of political systems as to which is better, communism or capitalism. It's Russia is in the wrong here. Russia has invaded a sovereign country for no good reason. Um, the, the thing that I wanted to, to discuss with you, Trevor, is that in your last podcast you mm. suggested that that Ukraine should accept Russia's terms and to um, to stop to stop the bombing. Mm. Um, do you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is actually legitimate? No. But Putin is a bad man. And it's not legitimate for them to invade Ukraine. Yeah. So it's sort of similar to the Chomsky arguments at this time. Why are we spending so much energy debating what the US is doing or what NATO is doing rather than discussing what Russia is doing? Because in order to understand how we got to this position, we need to understand the mistakes that were made in the lead up to it. So the... um, the analogy I would use is that after the First World War, uh, the West in its treatment of Germany was a mistake and the, um, 
the reparations and um, the difficulties for the Germans to get back on their feet because they weren't allowed to caused a, a resentment and a situation that was more going to lead to a nationalist movement and a Hitler-type character. So arguably the treatment of Germany after World War I brought about forces that made Hitler more likely. Now, yeah, after yeah. World War II, there was a completely different treatment of Germany and it was brought into the fold and, and a lesson was learned. So, so it's possible to talk about the forces that, that lead to historical events, the Hitlers, if you like, and still find fault with, with the West and say, you know what, the way you did that mightn't have been the best way to do it. And, yeah. and while that's not excusing Hitler for what he did, a lesson had to be learnt. So that's what we need to do with um, Russia and the Ukraine is it's easy to say there's any number of people out there who are saying Russia's evil and bad and what they're doing in the Ukraine is terrible. And, I mean, we could repeat that ad nauseum and that wouldn't add to anything. But what we're trying to do is say are there things, are there lessons that we could learn in this and maybe they will be applied to China down the track? Is it, is it are there things we can learn through this? So that's why we should look at the actions of the West and the historical build-up because it's instructive to maybe avoid yeah. this happening again. Sure. I agree with all that without dwelling on it. But yeah. I don't think um, – I think there's – I think there's an overt focus on the left of blaming everything that happens that's bad in the world on the US in a Chomskyan-type way. Mm. Um, I'll read you a little bit of, um, I, don't, I wonder if you've seen this, but we should, we should also get on to talking about what, um, what, um, what the West has to do now rather than the mistakes it's potentially made in the past. Mm. This is... Um, this is a letter from um, Chomsky's translator. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but uh, his name is Artem Chapai. Chapai, and this is his this is his letter. A short letter to some Western intellectuals. Please share it to whom it may concern. I can't write anything long because we're still on the run with my kids who are right here next to me. So, in brief, Ukraine was not dragged into war; it was attacked without even a pretext, like Hitler's attack on Poland. I know other countries have faced their share of foreign intervention, and right now you're witnessing overt Russian imperialism. I don't want to make any flawed historical comparisons, but empires have lost wars against smaller peoples before, and in the end, the Russian imperialist government must lose. Well, when you're being bombed, when you're thinking of ways to evacuate your kids, you have a different perspective than when you're sitting there cosy in an office somewhere in Arizona. Yes, Noam Chomsky. I'm looking at you, amongst others. So don't talk about the forces that are led to this because we're busy. No, we're we're busy staying alive. Is, is that, yeah. Is, well, well, well. Even Chomsky said this is a criminal war. Chomsky yeah. said has a tendency mm. to do this. He mm. says one sentence: "This mm. is a criminal war," but 
it's no it's no better nor worse than America's invasion of Iraq and then talks about American mistakes for about three quarters of an hour before going back and repeating the obvious. But um, really, the the situation here is it's it's a horrific situation and it's a it's now a difficult one, uh, a situation of brinksmanship that is very very difficult to see a way back from. The other argument would be if you don't talk about how we got here, you're being disrespectful to the victims. If you're just saying, oh, it's a mad, crazy Putin and that's it without examining the other forces, then you're, you know, you're being disrespectful to the victims is the other argument. They, they deserve yeah, to have this, this examined. That's true, but I, I think the, the, the only argument we're having hmm. is that Hitchens is saying that this was not caused by NATO expansion. NATO expansion is a symptom of the problem, not, not, the, not the root cause. It's something that's obviously made Putin angry, but it's made him angry because he doesn't care about the sovereignty of these countries. Mm. He said as much that the only sovereignty he respects about Ukraine is when it's under the Russian banner. Mm. So we, we, in the West, we have to make a choice based on values here, whether the sovereignty of those um, of those nations matter enough to us, or do we just appease Putin to avoid nuclear war at all costs? And then how far does Putin go? It has a very similar feel to the appeasement of Hitler before the Second World War. So, so, um, so I mentioned what I had heard as the Russian demands, which were reported by Reuters, which was give up the Donbass, give up Crimea and change your constitution so you never join NATO and it's over. Now, would you accept that? Well, I, 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 I honestly don't know what, what you could say to Ukraine without being, without being involved in it intimately. They've also had ceasefires when during ceasefires um, Putin has or his his army has bombed hospitals hmm. and then he's had the media put up um, articles that say that these are fake images of, of a pregnant woman being carried out of a hospital who, hmm. who um, incidentally died yesterday. Yeah, but would you accept that? So, did you accept those terms or not? Or are you just saying you don't know? Well, I, I don't know that those terms have been put to to um, to the Ukraine, and yeah. I, I I don't honestly know whether you could say that you could accept them or you could trust them, because really you're just you're just really what's going to happen next year is Putin is there going to be unrest in other sort of Russian speaking parts of the Ukraine where then uh, Putin's going to send in some arms to help the separatists, then there's going to be a bit of a conflict. And then Putin's going to decide he has to send in another peacekeeping mission to bomb Ukraine again. The, the reason, I think the thing about NATO and NATO expansionism, which is really the crux of this whole debate, is that, yes, Putin was aggravated by the West saying that countries, that NATO should expand and take some of these Soviet, ex-Soviet countries. But the fact is, the key issue is that the ex-Soviet countries want to join NATO. They want to mm. join the EU. They're desperate to. And why is that? Because mm. they're afraid of being bombed by Russia yeah. and because they want to have a prosperous society. Mm. They want to get out of the malaise that they've been in um, under another country for so long. Mm. And I, I think they should be allowed to do so. That's what I think is the right thing. 
and whether it's right that Ukraine should accept a really bad situation for their country because they're currently being slaughtered by a far bigger country, whilst, let's face it, the US is doing very little to help them. You know, in my opinion, uh, the US should have done a lot more once it knew that uh, Russia was going to invade and we knew Russia was going to invade. Um, they could have been given more uh, anti-aircraft um, weaponry and and all of that, they're, and now they're just sitting there getting slaughtered until Russia runs out of money. Hmm. So what the alternative could have been was to these countries, um, you can be part of the EU, but you can't be part of NATO. And but, uh, Ukraine tried that. Um in 2014, that was what the whole Euromedan was about. Yeah. They were just about to join the EU and then their kleptocratic Russian puppet president um, changed his mind at the last minute and then, as you know, the whole the whole thing. Yes, and but, but, NATO, days or whatever. but NATO and Europe should have said, look, economically you can be part of our trading block, but there's a problem in having you part of NATO as a military partner, we need a buffer zone between us to keep the Russians who have legitimate concerns about having missiles on their doorstep, just as JFK did when they wanted to put missiles in Cuba. And mm. while you might want to be part of NATO, it's up to NATO to decide whether you can be in or not. And strategically, strategically, um, for the safety of the planet, even though you really would like to be part of NATO, unfortunately, you're on the border with Russia. And it makes sense strategically that we have a buffer zone of countries that are not part of NATO with military capacity sitting on them. So you can join us economically, but not militarily. That's what should have happened. That's what the no, architect that of, happened? that's what the architects of, that's what you sent me a podcast and you said, listen to this, Trevor, and if you're not convinced by it, um, I don't know what to say. And the guy on the podcast said we need another George Cannon, and that's what George Cannon says. This, no, this, this, I, I, don't know what George, I don't know what George Cannon says, but how, why, why does the Ukraine have no sovereignty over what it does? It, it can ask for things, but just because you want to be part it of a group. just can't have them. Yes. You can't have them because I, Russia says no. No, because of the unfortunate geographical position they're in where NATO says, look, you guys are good guys, but it's unfortunate that you are where you are. And if we put um, you into NATO, this is going to cause a problem. But the, 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 the actual uh, – NATO is not the issue here because you, Ukraine mm. has not joined NATO. But it, it says it wants – It takes a long time to, n but, to join NATO. It's it's the threat of joining NATO. It's a threat that's but it's it, but it's Putin it's has said such, it's because they want to join NATO. It, it cannot be because mm. of NATO that mm. they're taking such an extreme. They're they're blowing up the whole whole of Kiev. They're. Uh, but you see, this gets back you know, to your non-acceptance. This is not even. This is this comes back to your non-acceptance that Russia could feel genuinely threatened by. NATO expansion. You just don't buy it because you think, are they seriously worried that NATO is going to attack? It's, it's bullshit. Russia couldn't possibly feel 
militarily threatened by NATO is, is really what it comes down to. You don't yeah, accept they, it's a genuine fear or a, or I don't a threat. I think anyone does, Trevor. Yeah, well, but... Who look, does? Look, Who thinks that NATO I, is okay. going to bomb Russia okay. and but, invade Russia? Okay, when Germany was um, um, leaving the Soviet bloc and we had this discussion about um, not one inch further eastwards, right? About NATO. So assurances were given that that NATO would not move one inch eastward. Now, no. Russia says no, that not does not apply to um, that only applied to Germany. Okay, correct. Yeah. Now, if you accept that that's the case, and you're reading those documents, the negotiators on the part of the West fully understood that that Russia felt threatened by a NATO expansion into East Germany and said, of course, we won't move NATO into East Germany. We understand that's a problem for you. So were they just pulling themselves or were they genuinely believing it at the time? Because when you read the documents and you read the meeting notes between Gorbachev and the US counterpart, the, the tone of it is, of course, we understand, we agree, we would not move NATO an inch eastward, even within Germany. Now, why yeah, would they say it, that if it was completely nonsensical that that would be a threat to, to Gorbachev or the Russians? They knew it then that that simply moving that, NATO... That was, a, that was a discussion over the division of Germany yes. from, from east and west. Yes. Gorbachev has said himself... The topic of NATO expansion was never discussed. Beyond Germany. It was not, it was not raised in those years. Beyond Germany. Yeah, beyond Germany. But, but the, it was discussed that. But it was discussed about East Germany and NATO not moving yeah, into... Yeah, but in those days there was the Warsaw Pact. I, I agree. So my point so is... It wasn't, even a, it wasn't even a consideration when that conversation happened. No, it was so in relation to East finish. Germany. So Putin if you accept, is putting out a mythology when he's no no no, he's saying I, I'm not he's Hugh, saying Hugh. That, I'm purposefully not arguing that it was a reference beyond Germany. I'm purposefully I know, not I'm, arguing. I'm concerned that people listening are uh, hearing what you're saying, and no, because Putin's mythology about this is that the West has promised that NATO would never expand into the eastern areas, and you and I both know that. That was never asked for and was never given. So, so, so it's not an issue. So okay, for the people listening, in the in the meeting, basically the West said, "We agree that NATO won't move one inch eastwards." Russia says that refers to um, all parts of Europe where NATO currently was, and the West says, "No, no, no, that related just to Germany. That it, the promise was that." NATO would not move into the newly freed up East Germany, okay? So even if you accept that the West's um, position on that, you still have to accept that the West acknowledged in that that Russia was worried about the expansion of NATO merely into East Germany. So if you yeah, want I, to argue they, it's foolish for anybody to worry about NATO expansion, the Western negotiators recognised and understood that at that time. Yeah. I think 
I, yeah, I, I think I've acknowledged that, though, Trevor, in our discussion, so perhaps mm. we can be a little bit less adversarial and agree on a couple of things. Like, mm. I, I agree that Putin is threatened by NATO expansion, in, but I don't agree that he has any right to be threatened of a potential military action against Russia by NATO. Okay. And I don't think the West or any of his um, Soviet satellite countries that are now independent should feel burdened by an irrational fear of, of, of him if he indeed holds it. I don't think he does. Mm. I think he's threatened by the loss of power and the loss of esteem and the humiliation to the great Soviet empire. It's certainly a driving so I, force. I've kind of acknowledged your side of the argument okay. here. Okay. So I think you should acknowledge that Putin's nationalism, his wanting to, you know, get the empire back, that's got to be one of his key motivations here. I admitted that from the beginning. I admitted that from the beginning. And therefore Hitchens point stands because whether NATO expanded or not, he would still be invading them. He'd um, be creating disturbances on their borders. He'd having he'd be having separatists create conflicts, and then he'd be annexing Crimea. He didn't annex Crimea because of uh, NATO. He didn't invade Georgia uh, because uh, of NATO, and he didn't uh, go well, to the Chechnya you know, because of well, NATO. No, he, he went there to get his territory back. Uh, no, he was worried about um, Crimea was part of Ukraine and looking to join NATO. So it it was yeah, part it of the NATO. Joined, it hasn't joined NATO. It, but he was getting in before they did. That's what he was doing. Yeah, I know. But even yeah. making that argument mm. legitimises mm. what he's doing. And I don't and, and it's not legitimate. It's not mm. a it's not no, a legitimate no, it, it, it's, it's not even a legitimate pretext for war. It's a pretext which he's putting out there for war, it, but it's not a legitimate one. Well, it's a pre- pretext so that he can get what he wants. Well so he Let's see where we agree on this. So, yes, I agree on the nationalism. I agree it's a, a driving part of him. Like he knows his place in history. And, yeah. Um, and um, so what, what, where nationalism can drive you to take territory, it can also drive you to protect territory. So um, just... I just want to explore one part of this, which is um, um, the, the, the timing of it. Like uh, Gorbachev, 1985, and I, I have to admit I don't know anything about Chechnya, but it sounds to me like it was internal within Russia and not external. But No, they, it, they declared independence I, and then okay. they fought a war with Russia. Okay. So... What we had was um, uh, the, the, the uh, Yugo- former Yugoslavia and Kosovo uh, around 2007. And, and at that point, there was a separatist movement, Kosovo, and there was sort of an ethnic cleansing by the Serbians of the Albanians in Kosovo. Yeah, and Genocide, yeah. yeah. And so what we had there was NATO coming in and uh, getting actively involved militarily in Kosovo, bombing, fighting, etc. So, mm. and and then not long afterwards, after, well, there's a ceasefire period, and then eventually Kosovo claimed independence. And and really, from a Russian point of view, you could look at that and go, well, gee, 
if there's a separatist movement in a European country, then it's okay for NATO to come in and fight on behalf of the separatists um, in a, you know, previously NATO was all about presumably defence, but um, the problem with that is it, it opened a Pandora's box where Russia could look at that and go, well, gee, what if there's a separatist movement somewhere on our border at some point? Is, is NATO yes. going to feel like they can come in and do what they did in Kosovo? I think that's the purpose of NATO, though. Like, do, do you disagree so, that NATO should have done anything about Slobodan Milosevic committing genocide? Um, I, I don't... Should they have just stood there and done nothing when I, that's their role? I, I don't know is the short answer. But what I'm saying to Why? you is... Why? Should we just have done nothing and let people die just to placate Russia? I, I don't know enough about it is what I'm saying. I don't know... I don't know who should have if something should have been done. So here's the point, though. Yeah. Um, if you've said, you just said, well, that's one of the reasons for NATO, but yeah. isn't then that also when you say, well, what was, what's, what is Putin scared of? It's not like NATO's ever going to bomb Russia. Well, if you take the Kosovo example and you end up with some separatists in a, a Russian border area, Maybe they would. If Putin commits genocide, then I'm sure there'll be consequences whether people have joined NATO or not. But if you join NATO, um, there's an there's there's part of the agreement. There is an entitlement to expect some level of protection. That's that, why it exists. That weren't even in NATO. So that was when, when Yugoslavia wasn't part of NATO. So it was just an independent non-NATO country that NATO moved in on and started dropping bombs. Now, from the yeah, Russian point of view... Surely it, surely it should have done so, though, regardless of what Russia thinks. Why is Russia so worried let, about let, it? If we say that... Is Russia the biggest supporter of... It seems like um, it's Russia and China seem to always um, side with the totalitarian dictators like mm -hmm. Mugabe and mm -hmm. Gaddafi and Slobodan Milosevic. Mm -hmm. um, and and then there's this general equivalence that we that we have to accept that um yeah we should just sit back while people um, commit genocide against the Albanians or or whatever you don't accept that Trevor I know but, you, you you wouldn't accept that one bit yeah but here we go from the Russian point of view they say well if the West thinks that the dictator is bad enough they'll enter a country and bomb it to protect the separatists so it's it's. You know, it just adds weight to what I'm saying about um, the Russians' yeah, genuine I, I sense know, of I, fear I, of having NATO move right up to its border. I think, yes, they do, but I, I think they want to I, – I, I don't think that's their primary motivation. Mm. I think it's part of the motivation, but I don't think it's the primary one. And the fact is um, I think what we need to agree on is whether it's a legitimate motivation or not. It's not a legitimate motivation. If Stalin doesn't want NATO there because Stalin intends to commit genocide on on parts of his countries or mm. neighbouring countries, then that's um, that's not something that we can tolerate. Well, we have to bear that that's, in mind. That's what NATO. That's what NATO's for. But, but and we I have to bear that to... in mind when we're 
when we're providing entry into NATO by neighbouring countries. And we have to bear in mind, you know what? That guy's an evil dictator likely to, um, likely to um, ethnically cleanse a, um, a separatist movement and likely to feel threatened, therefore, by uh, a NATO build-up on his borders. So for those reasons, even though we like you a lot, for the security of everybody, it's a good idea to keep you out of NATO. Hmm. Well, Hugh, we're nearly done with well, um, with the Hitchens thing. What else have I got here on um, uh, in my notes here? What What else would you like to say about Ukraine and um, Hitchens? And uh, is there anything? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I can say without hmm. getting into an argument with you. But uh, I, I thought you might have brought up the whole. Um, that the US installed, you know, a lot of people on the left wing on, you know, uh, Cohen and so forth think that uh, the US installed a puppet regime in the Ukraine following the um, ousting of Yanukovych. Mm. Um, um, and, um, you don't, yeah, I think. Do you think I, there's I, any I meddling think, at all by the USA in that? Yeah, I, I think definitely there was, but not not nearly as much as there was by obviously the Soviet, obviously by Russia. I should mm. say. Um, I think it was interesting that I'm not sure how many people know, but Yanukovych, who um, the, main, the the problem with Ukraine was they wanted to join the EU. There was a large amount of the population that wanted to join. I mm. think a survey had 43 percent or so, mm. and Ukraine is obviously. Got a lot of ex. It's got a lot of Russian-speaking, uh, different ethnicities in in the country, mm. and it was going to join the EU. Uh, it was all agreed. It had gone on for quite some time, and then there was a whole lot of complex financial arrangements. The Ukraine economy was in terrible trouble, um, and Russia had agreed to give a loan of something like fifteen billion dollars mm -hmm. to try and to get them not to join the EU. Mm -hmm. And the and then there was the whole outcry, and I think I heard you pr previously mentioning the the couple of documentaries that you can watch on the whole situation, which mm. kind of disagree with each other. There's um, allegations that U.S. spies were involved, and there's certainly a lot stronger allegations that um, that Russian uh, security forces were um, snipers were involved as well in in uh, drumming up the violence in that whole. Um, Euromaidan uh, protest, mm. um, but um, it's interesting that Yanukovych was a uh, kleptocrat of quite um, substantial, quite amazing capacity. He had a net worth of twelve billion dollars. Yep, before, before. he had a property worth. Can I just finish this yep. little bit? Yep, he had a property worth um, something like one hundred and seventy million dollars. It had its own private zoo. In a uh, in an interview, he humorously claimed that the ostriches just happened to be there. <laughs> Native <laughs> Ukrainian ostriches. He was a he was a kleptocrat. The thing that we didn't get onto was that sort of thing and how Putin, how the whole country and the whole government of Russia is completely corrupt. Mm -hmm. The media has been shut down. It's not democratic. It's an authoritarian regime, and. Um, 
he's worth about $80 billion having having got all the money from from the oligarchs. So um, did, did you see the voting records for the vote for Yanukovych? Did you see oh, the, this, um, the, the geographical breakdown of the voting for Yanukovych? I didn't see that, no. Right. In, in, the, in the second election that he won? In yes. the election that he won in, before he was out? Did you yes. Yeah. yeah. If you, you know, when you look at the election, and I think probably it maps up with previous ones as well, it's obviously a divided country in the sense that yeah. there is a significant proportion of the people who are um, pro-Russia and a significant proportion who are pro-West. Like it is yes. a divided country in that sense. And, I, and yeah. it might be that, um, that the future resolution is to recognise that. I mean, we talk about separatist movements being legitimate Kosovo or Chechens or whatever, that if you've got enough people of who are willing of the same mind that they want to separate from the sovereign country, then we should allow them. When, when you look at the Ukraine, it's, it's quite arguable that, that a significant proportion to the uh, east would, would want to be part of Russia and the ones on the West want to be part of the West, and maybe it is a country that should be split because there is a strong divide within it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that might be part of the potential solution, and I and that was an argument. That was a point that I was going to raise as a potential cause of all of these disputes that Russia is having with its neighbours. In it, in that they they do have. It's also the case that the older demographic in most of these countries has a higher percentage of people who support the Soviet empire and their Russian history than the younger ones do. Um, but it's also the case that there's a fairly strong, uh, you know, it was the political will of the people in the in the Ukraine to join the EU. And no doubt it'd be their political will to to join NATO if they can. And the key thing from this whole, you know, the whole discussion is that the reason these countries want to join NATO is so that they are protected from Russia. That's yeah. the key thing. That's what rules out Russian offence or Russian threat or, you know, you know, the kleptocratic tyrant who's there who's just ready to ready to pounce on any insult. That's why we can't give any um, credence to his, you know, his, oh, it's NATO, NATO's enlargement that's caused me to brutally invade Chechnya, Georgia and Ukraine and to annex Crimea. It's not the case. It's not the case. All right. I think we've made our points, Hugh. The chat <laughs> room's been going off. Has it? <laughs> it's impossible, dear listener, to... to um, uh, it's impossible to keep track of the chat room and listen to somebody uh, debate and try and work things out. Um, I, I saw some so, comments that were asking me to say, yeah. you know, why, yeah. you know, to justify whether the US invasion of Iraq was imperialism or not. I purposefully didn't want to get into you, you comparing the US actions. Yeah. I mean, We'll be here forever. That's I wouldn't, yeah. yeah. That's right. Um, we would be. Yeah. So, 
Hey, Hugh, what I'd like to do one day, dear listener, you may not know, but Hugh Harris is an ex-professional poker player. (laughs) Are you still playing poker? Occasionally, semi-professional. Can we do a podcast where you just explain to us how to win at poker? Oh yeah, I can. I can explain pretty quick. Okay, right. You want to? I can do that now. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. You want to win at poker? You go to the casino. uh, You you Google the top ten percent of hands. You Google in 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 poker. Poker. uh, So Texas No Limit Hold'em is what people play mostly now. Mm. So you get two cards. So you only play the top. 10% 10% of hands. Uh, as, as in as you, when you get as your first in, two cards, you only play the when top. you get your first two you cards. You fold for the, night, the bottom 90%. Is that yeah. what you're saying? You might fold your hand for an hour if you're unlucky. Right. The, 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 reason, the way you can win, particularly at a live casino, it's much harder online, so don't play online poker. It's supposedly illegal, but, mm. you know, I think it still happens. Yep. Um, but at the casino, you just don't play. You only play when you get good cards. And in the long run, you you can win big because most people go to the casino for one or two hours. They play every single hand. They play all the garbage cards. All you have to do is have a good, strong hand, and then you just keep betting and put all the money in, and then you win. Ah, uh, okay. But if you're at a table with pros in a competition, like you used, that would take you a few hours, like you used to do, that wouldn't work because they would know every time you played, you had a strong hand. They would just fold. So. That wouldn't work in that in that tournament play, would it? No, then right. it becomes a complex complex strategy. Right there. Okay, yeah. you can't do that in five minutes. Right. No, okay. I can't do that in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, Hugh. Well, it's been good chatting. What have you been doing? Okay. Um, um, atheism, rationalist, um, secular stuff. You're still batting away at the Facebook page of John Dixon occasionally. Um, no, he's. Uh, um, I, I have to confess that he's blocked me from oh, his page. Right. Okay. Finally. I uh, probably made one too many comment about uh, the Gospels, no one knowing who authored the Gospels right. because it's one of those things, you know, when you converse with someone for a long period of time, yep. you can tell when something really bothers them. Yep. That really bothers him. No one knows who wrote them. He can't stand it. He doesn't want to debate it, so he just blocked me. So right. there we go. Right. It's been it's it's opened up a bit of time for me, but uh, good. <laughs> I'm very busy with uh, with work and kids and everything else. So I'm occasionally yeah. writing an article here and there, but not doing any anywhere near as much. Right. I'd comment on Facebook. Right. Okay. I know uh, you're a bit skeptical about my satanic activism, but if I have a victory, you you will be invited to the party. <laughs> I will. I'll be. Delighted to come to the party if right. you have a victory. I hope you do. Thank you. Very good. <laughs> All right, Hugh Harris. I think um, I think everyone in the chat room enjoyed it. Uh, they appreciated the debate, and um, um, and Tom, the warehouse guy, found in your favour. Um, Hugh, so I like him. Yeah, he's obviously a good bloke. Yeah, I like him. So Tom was by my side at the bar table when I made my appearance. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't like my arguments much. Anyway, all right, guys, we won't hang around any longer. Thanks, dear listener, for that. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with something else next week. Thanks, you, and we'll talk to you another time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, brother. Cheers. Bye. Hi, I'm Matthew from Atlanta. Um, 
It seems that with so many issues uh, causing concern for American voters this year, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint a single defining uh, a point. But uh, for me, it seems that um, as Russia has just uh, openly stated that it has no fear of another Cold War, uh, we have a choice ahead of us, especially among conservatives. And you had encouraged conservative voters to comment. Um, and the question, it seems to me, is do we bargain with Russia? Do we play ball with Russia in order to in- obtain their cooperation with the Iranian problem and the North Korean problem? Or, on the other hand, do we draw a, you know, a thick red line uh, around the uh, Eastern Bloc uh, ex-Soviet states um, that we have you know, sort of pledged our support and our, our protection mm. of? Chris Hitchens, what yes. do you think? I mean, well, there was a b- big argument about this uh, about a decade ago under the Clinton administration about NATO expansion. And the underlying principal difference was this. Uh, some said, if you expand NATO, you will provoke the Russians. They'll think they're being encircled. And the other opposite case was they are going to try and regain their temporarily lost influence in Eastern and uh, Balkan Europe uh, in any case. So the quicker we can get as many members as we can under the protective umbrella in this period of of, um, Russian, what shall we call it, uh, eclipse, uh, the better. I think the second view was, was the more intelligent one. The Russians are going to be expansionist whether we provoke them to it or not. For example, the Russians keep saying that we're trying to encircle them. In what sense does the independence of Kosovo, a landlocked province, <coughs> former Yugoslavia, uh, with no common border with Russia, ex- threaten Russia with encirclement? In what sense does the independence of the Baltic states, which the Soviets gained as territory in a, in a deal with Hitler, a direct bargain between Stalin and Hitler, what, it, it constitute an encirclement? This is insulting. In what sense does... Does the, does the independence of Georgia constitute an encirclement? What, what we are facing, and we may as well give it its right name, is what I called it earlier, a chauvinistic, uh, theocratic in part, uh, xenophobic Russian imperialism. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, 
contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.